0: Hello, and welcome back to Meyer Fun Facts. We have a very special episode today and a first for the show. I had the opportunity to sit down and interview UW professor Howard Schwaber about his life passion, the US Constitution. Former practicing lawyer, now educator, author, and pundit, Any public discussion of the Constitution and its meaning, be it local or national, seeks to have Professor Schwaber as its guest. With a PhD in government and an MA in history, he has authored no less than four books on the Constitution and democracy, while writing about 30 articles on these topics. He has taught in Kazakhstan and Australia and has been recognized multiple times at the University of Wisconsin as Teacher of the Year. The focus of our discussion with Professor Schwaber will be on the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, the so-called Reconstruction Amendments, as they were passed in 1865, 1868, and 1869, respectively. The Constitution is typically described as having three parts, the preamble, the main body, and the amendments. The main body consists of seven articles. The first three articles created a national government consisting of a legislative, article one, an executive, article two, and a judicial branch, Article Three, with a system of checks and balances among the three branches. Article Four addresses the relationships among the states and at its passage contain the notorious Fugitive Slave Clause, which existed until the passage of the 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery. Article five addresses how to propose and pass amendments of which as of today's date, total 27 in number. Now let's get to the interview. Meyer Fun Facts is privileged to have as today's guest, Professor Howard Schwaber considered hands down one of the gurus on the history and meaning of the United States Constitution. Bonjour and bienvenue, Professor.
1: Oh, thank you much.
0: Uh, Previously on the podcast, we briefly discussed the 18th and 21st Amendments dealing with prohibition, and I thought it would be a good idea before diving into the 14th and 15th Amendments, if you could give us a quick overview of how amendments get proposed and passed.
1: Uh, sure. Um, so, in principle, the the rules for amending the Constitution are found in Article Five, and in principle, there are two ways it can happen. Either a proposed amendment can come out of the Congress and be sent for ratification by three fifths of the states, or a new constitutional convention could be called. That last has never happened. Uh, it, it exists on paper as a possibility, and some people are talking about trying to do it, but thus far, it hasn't happened. Well,
0: were the first 10 amendments passed at a constitutional convention, or were those dealt with separately uh, coming out of the the other process? They
1: were dealt with separately in the states. So what, what happened is when the original Constitution, which did not have the Bill of Rights attached to it, uh, was being considered for ratification in Massachusetts, uh, a deal was proposed by the Federalists to reassure Massachusetts' anti-Federalists and the deal was, if you approve this Constitution, we promise to bring forth a Bill of Rights and send that around for ratification. That deal was successful, and Federalists and other states copied the strategy. So by the time the Constitution was adopted, uh, I don't recall the exact number, but most of the states had done so with an explicit caveat that you, you, you know, we will see a Bill of Rights in the near future. And sure enough, in 1891, they did. 1791, excuse me, they did. The... Um... The three quarters vote
0: by the states, is there a time limit on those? I I seem to recall the eco rights amendment still floating around as a possibility or.
1: um... The answer is the answer is nobody knows. So some amendments when they are proposed have sunset provisions. If this is not ratified by date X, it will be deemed to have failed. The ERA didn't have one of those. And not only is it the case that no one has a good answer to the question of at what point has it been so long that you have to start over just because time has passed. In the case of the ERA, it's even more complicated because some states that ratified it withdrew their ratification later. Can a state take back its ratification? Again, we have no idea. Um, You know, at this point, the ERA is kind of more a parlor game than a serious proposal. In order for the ERA to actually be passed, it would have to, I think, It is inconceivable to me uh, that, for example, you know, another couple of states ratifying it goes to the court and the Supreme Court says, yes, it's now a ratified amendment. I find that extraordinarily unlikely, given all the complexities and uncertainties. Uh, So I think any chance of having the ERA become part of the Constitution will require starting the process over.
0: I you mentioned and this will be the last question on this topic, that some of the there have been some state proposals to call for a convention and sort of a people see that as a potential mischief making event. Are there rules that accompany a constitutional
1: convention? In other words, there are no rules. There are no rules. In, In fact, Some states have voted to call for a constitutional convention with a limited mandate, for example, to a balanced budget amendment and nothing else. Some have called to have a constitutional convention for other limited purposes. And some have called for a constitutional convention without limitations. No one knows whether any of those limitations are binding or valid. Um, What if what possible remedy there could be if a convention once called went beyond the bounds of whatever mandate it was given. Nothing in Article Five says anything about giving limited mandates, but nothing precludes that either. We're in completely uncharted waters, waters here, and as you know, there are an awful lot of areas in the U.S. Constitution where what, in retrospect, seem like very obvious questions simply aren't addressed. I'll give you a, a, an example that, that was a huge controversy, uh, and actually remains so right up to. So it was a huge controversy in the 1790s, um, and it was a bit of a controversy in the U.S. Supreme Court well, two years ago. The Constitution says that presidents uh, may appoint executive officials. It says nothing about who can fire them
0: was so, that was that the foundation of some of the
1: early cases to the Supreme Court? Uh, it was that. Uh, well, thats versus the Supreme Court. There's a big debate in Congress. That issue comes to the Supreme Court in the Jacksonian era. But before I mean, so you can imagine an argument that says a new president is elected. he's required to keep the entire cabinet his pre, his predecessor from a different party perhaps had appointed and he's stuck with what donald trump likes to call a deep state uh that opposes his interests well that doesn't seem plausible you can imagine that uh there's a whole complicated set of rules about this we distinguish between what are called inferior officers and major officers um there's a if 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 the law is as is the case in for some appointments an appointment must be ratified by the senate so say Secretary of State, for example, does that Does that mean that firing the Secretary of State also requires agreement by the Senate? All of these questions, uh, uh, Madison, James Madison himself in the first Congress admitted it was an oversight. Basically, we just forgot to think of this question. Um, we have rules for starting a war, but not ending them. We have rules for entering a treaty, but not, not c- canceling them. The constitution leaves all kinds of sort of, If there are two halves to a process, there are numerous instances where one is specified and the others just look blank.
0: Interesting. Now let's zero in on the 14th and 15th amendments, which are commonly referred to as the reconstruction amendments. Generally, how did those amendments come about and what do they provide for?
1: Sure, more properly, we should talk about the 13th, 14th and 15th, uh, all of which were adopted in a few years after the Civil War. In general terms, all three amendments had the function of dramatically strengthening the federal government in order to prevent the South from slipping back into its antebellum ways. That's, that's the, that was the context. Uh, There's a great deal of strong arming involved in getting those amendments ratified. The 14th Amendment, which is the most important by far, is ratified by a Congress that had no Southern representation. And then Southern states weren't allowed to send people to Congress until they agreed to ratify the 14th Amendment. So it was effectively a gun to the head ratification process, which is extraordinary given how important this amendment has been to reflect on the fact that the manner of its adoption um, is really pretty sketchy.
0: You mean uh, the 13th was passed
1: 1865 and that. Prohibited slavery, correct? Right, and there were and there were certainly no southern representatives in Congress in 1865.
0: And how did the southern states respond
1: to the passage of the 13th? Well, there's no, very little response involved. This was Reconstruction. Uh, uh, so, if you if you look at the history, um, after at the end of the Civil War, initially there was not a substantial northern presence in the South. And so the initial response by the Southern states to the 13th Amendment was to adopt what are called the Black Codes, viciously restrictive laws that limited Black people's rights uh, just short of the actual practice of slavery. The 14th Amendment was adopted in response to those, to try and strike down the Black Codes. By the time the 14th Amendment is, uh, let me me back up again, President Johnson, who's a pro-Southerner, allows the South to hold elections. Without giving any requirement that they allow black people to vote. So, all white conventions are held and all white legislatures are elected uh, that then apply, uh, adopt these black codes. Subsequently, congressional reconstruction begins. Forcibly, the southern states are forced to allow black people to vote. And now, suddenly, unsurprisingly, very, very different legislatures are elected. And it's the first time until the 19, late 1960s. There's a long gap. Uh, but this is the one moment when there's extensive black participation in southern voting and office holding. Um, and Republican governments are elected in various states. In 1876, Reconstruction effectively ends. The North simply is, is no longer interested, for a variety of reasons, in trying to reconstruct Southern society. Uh, the South, the, the basic deal in, in, in the, 18, the 1876 bargain is that local authorities and Democrats will be allowed to dominate the South and maintain white supremacy and the rule of traditional elites, the National Republican Party will focus on controlling the national government and focus on business and banking. Um, and this has to do with both the, the shifting preferences of the parties and the, the political deal that was made. But going back to the 14th, in 1868, the 14th Amendment is the big, um, uh, the big major assertion of federal authority to insist that the South must respect rights. And from there, it becomes the basis for most of the rights. Nearly all of them that we recognize today. When we are
0: the fourteenth, the longest amendment
1: that we have. I never even thought about that. Uh, it's not particularly long. It's four paragraphs. Uh, five. Excuse me. Five paragraphs. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> okay. I don't think so. Uh, I think the twenty-fifth is quite long, for example, which has to do with succession uh, and the problem of what to do with an incapacitated president.
0: Now, the fourteenth um, established citizenship a concept called equal protection, which I don't believe shows up anywhere
1: else. That's correct. There there was no... So so let let me me put it in broad terms. Um, These are things people have a hard time sometimes getting their heads around. None of the rights in the Bill of Rights applied against the states at all until the 14th Amendment. In fact, none of the rights in the Bill of Rights applied against the states until starting the 1920s. It was in the 1920s that for the first time the court said that the 14th Amendment, 1868, meant that the rights of the Bill of Rights, 1791, now adopted against the states. So it's sort of a series of steps, but it's not until 1925 that for the very first time, uh, with respect to the Free Speech Clause, the Supreme Court says any of the rights in the Bill of Rights apply to the states at all. To this day, not all of the rights in the Bill of Rights apply to the states. So the 14th Amendment establishes Birthright citizenship, anyone born in the United States is a citizen of the United States in the state in which they reside, and that's clearly terribly important. It establishes some set of rights of national citizenship, although what these are is not entirely clear. And the question of what else it did was very contested. In the 1870s and 80s, what else did the 14th Amendment do? Did it mean that Southern states, well, all states, but again, the focus was on Southern states, were required to recognize rights like free speech for Black people? And the answer is no. In a series of cases, the U.S. Supreme Court said the 14th Amendment doesn't require states, any states, to to respect any rights in particular, except those federal national rights, which are things like the ability to go to federal court or to get a passport. Um, The ability to go into federal court is not trivial. That was was what Dred Scott was initially about. So I, I don't mean to suggest that there was nothing going on here, but in terms of any of the rights we think of, let's start again with free speech, which is the easiest one. That did not apply to the states even after the 14th Amendment, not until the 1920s. It is the case that the 14th Amendment introduced two, well, three three actually really broadly framed clauses, the meaning of which left everybody wondering. One was the Privileges and Immunities Clause. It said, no state shall deny the privileges and immunities of citizenship. That could have been understood. Some people argued it should be understood to mean that all Americans have certain rights and states have to respect them. That's not how the court read them. The the Supreme Court read that provision only to mean a very very complicated uh, and very limited equal treatment principle, which said basically if you provide certain rights to white people, you have to provide them to black people as well, but you don't have to provide rights at all. The second really broad clause was the due process clause. No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property except by due process of law. Starting in about the 1880s and 90s, that one was given a lot of substantive substantive meaning, but not in respect to restoring racial equality in the South or anything like that, rather in terms of protecting the economic rights of businesses. This is what comes to be known as substantive due process. And so ironically, uh, the giant constitutional instrument that was created to establish universal rights, uh, primarily for poor people and, and minorities, had its first real effect in protecting economic rights uh, to prevent things like labor unions. And then the last one is the Equal Protection Clause. And as you correctly said, there is no Equal Protection Clause anywhere else in the Constitution. This was a brand new concept. And it took some time for courts to start parsing out what it might mean. But realistically, we can say two things. First, the the, the 14th Amendment is the piece of the Constitution that means that there are rights that states have to respect. And second, it didn't start doing that until the 20th century. Both, all three of these amendments have
0: a clause that does not appear, to my knowledge, in any other amendment, which basically says, as I understand it, Congress can pass any laws to enforce this
1: amendment. It appropriate legislation.
0: And
1: why was that included? And what's the practical effect of that? That's a really good and really important question. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were not originally understood to primarily about giving a new job for courts. The initial understanding was that these amendments would empower Congress, that there would be a new body of federal laws that require states to respect rights. The idea that this is primarily a mandate for courts to apply constitutional rights, really comes significantly later. Those authorization clauses, it's the fifth clause of the 14th Amendment, it's the second clause of the 13th, providing Congress with the authority to uh, uh, enact appropriate legislation, were thought of as the equivalent of what's called the necessary and proper clause in Article One, Section 8. So Article I of the Constitution gives Congress a bunch of powers. And then at the end it says, Congress can make whatever laws are appropriate to exercise these powers. That's how these three amendments were drafted as well. Here's a power for Congress, and Congress may make the laws needed to give them effect. It's only later that the courts take over and say, no, it's our job to determine what this means.
0: Do laws that Congress pass pursuant to those sure. provisions have any special juice? Do they give any special deference? Uh, do do courts have to say, hey, wait a minute, this was passed in light of the 14th Amendment or in light of the 15th. Uh, we gotta be careful. Uh,
1: on the contrary, uh, at least in modern times, courts are more eager to strike down laws passed under the 14th Amendment than they are under, say, the Commerce Clause. These all important from the very beginning, these amendments that were intended to empower Congress to be able to create broad liberties have been curtailed by courts to make them less and less effective uh today and and going back a number of decades now but today there's a formal doctrine that says when congress acts under its 14th amendment powers for example it has much narrower powers than when it acts under the uh, the powers it was given in 1787 which is precisely the opposite of what was understood at the time that the 14th was adopted
0: i used to uh appear in front of a federal judge on a regular basis who during jury selection would tell potential jurors that they were about to exercise one of their two primary obligations of being a citizen that is serve on a jury and he always mentioned and to vote and so my question is is there A specific provision giving a constitutional right
1: to vote to to US citizens? And the answer is no. Um, We are unique in having a constitution that does not secure a right to vote in modern democracies. So, in the original 1787 constitution, the rule is that in federal elections, who gets to vote is decided by the states. And the only limitation is they have to allow the same people to vote in those elections that they allow to vote in their own elections for whichever is the larger house of their legislature. Which means a state could say, only three guys named Bob can vote in our state election and therefore only three guys named Bob can vote in the federal election. The only requirement was that the rule be the same. That has changed a bit. The 15th Amendment says you cannot restrict voting on the basis of race. But that's the only limitation. One of the reasons every time you hear a controversy about, say, voting rights or voter ID or gerrymandering or whatever else it is, every, any kind of voting related controversy, one reason you're always hearing people claiming there's racial discrimination going on is because no other form of denial of the opportunity to vote violates the Constitution. Two exceptions to that. You can't not allow women to vote and you can't not allow people over 18 to vote. But you can but you could in principle, today, have a rule that says only people with more than $1 million in assets may vote. And constitutionally, that would be fine. You bring up the question of gerrymandering, which
0: happens to be a hot issue in Wisconsin. Oh, yes. Is there a tie between gerrymandering and any of these amendments? I mean, you've indicated indicated the racial challenges. Is there anything else that Ties in with that well,
1: issue. No, no uh, uh, unfortunately. So, in the past, the Supreme Court has considered the possibility that gerrymandering might be a problem under the First Amendment. If you phrase it this way, you say people who are members of a certain party, whichever party is being gerrymandered against, let's say the Democratic Party, people who are members of the Democratic Party have votes that count less, they're therefore being punished for their political beliefs. This violates the First Amendment. That was a the theory. A different theory talked about equal protection. People are members of the Democratic Party, and of course, an anti-Republican gerrymander—it's the Republican Party, but whomever. People who are members of the affected party are not being given equal protection of the laws. That was a theory. Quite recently, the U.S. Supreme Court declared that no, the Constitution says nothing about political gerrymandering at all, only about racial gerrymandering. You have to go back, or one should go back. The 15th Amendment says you cannot discriminate in the right to vote on the basis of race. For a long time, that was done anyway with things like literacy tests that had grandfather clauses and other racially restrictive mechanisms. When the Voting Rights Act is adopted under the 14th Amendment, that's Congress exercising that authority it was given to do what the Supreme Court did not do. Those things are outlawed. So then what arrive are what are called second generation barriers. Uh, Other ways to disenfranchise voters and specifically uh, racial minority voters. And these include things like gerrymandering. Not all gerrymanders are racial by any means, but given that voting in America is highly racialized, one really effective way, for example, if you're the Republican Party, one really effective way to diminish the effect of votes for Democrats is to gerrymander the black population so that their votes don't count as much. That doesn't even have to have any racial motivation to occur. It can just be a reflection of the fact that that decreases political support for Democrats, as I like to say, um, if all black voters voted for Republicans, I'm quite sure it would be Democrats uh, trying to make these racial gerrymanders and Republicans insisting on how important it is that minorities vote. That's not 100 percent true. The the, the the racial prejudice and the political preferences are not completely are not unrelated, um, but certainly, you know, it's a good place to start. There is no right. Uh, our Supreme Court has said, and again, I, I can't emphasize enough, ours is the only constitution which i'm aware of, that has no guarantee of democratic rights there are no rights to democracy other than in this kind of backhand way you can't have fewer less right to vote for this group than that group you can't have a more stricter franchise in this kind of election than that election there are equal treatment principles but that's it
0: i can't let you go without some speculation on your part or predictions for the future back in september Jamie Raskin came and spoke at Ideas Fest, and I found him extremely upbeat over the future of the of the country. And he talked about how historically uh, we've expanded rights and made them more accessible to the U.S. And he was, "Hey, the future is going to be great." Do you feel the same way?
1: Oh, uh, no. I mean, so this is what he's, you know, this is the famous line, the arc of history of long and it bends toward justice. And so if we're just patients, things will get better and better. I don't have that same confidence, um, at least in the medium term, let's say the next 20 to 30 years. I'm not going to try and predict centuries. But in the next generation, it seems to me that the trends point toward an increasing separation where more and more, what rights people have will depend on what state they're in. Going back to the kind of pre Fourteenth Amendment version of federalism, where national rights are weaker and weaker, um, and, and partly because of the courts, uh, such that such that in some states, you know, there will be drastic narrowing of rights we've come to take for granted—not just rights like abortion, but any number of different areas of rights or, or the meaning of equal protection—whereas in other states, something I much broader. The Dobbs
0: decision has obviously caused a lot of people to be concerned. Are the cases such as Lawrence versus Texas and Oberfeld versus Hodges, are those next on the chopping block
1: for this court? So the justices in Dobbs insisted that wasn't the case, but I have to say I don't really understand how they can say that. Uh, because the re- well, other than Thomas, who insisted they absolutely are on the chopping block, <laughs> uh, the reasoning of Dobbs, the test that is set up about a historically, a, store, a deeply rooted historic recognition of a specifically described right, not just the tolerated practice. You have to show a deeply rooted history of recognizing something as a constitutional right, and you have to do that based on the most specific possible description of the right. So, for example, in Roe, Justice Blackman did not say there's a right to abortion. Justice Blackmun said there's a right to privacy, which is broad enough to include abortion. If you focus on the specific description of the right, abortion, as opposed to the broad description, privacy, you get a different equation. If you then ask, is there a longstanding historical tradition of treating abortion as a protected right? The answer is, of course, no. And that's the basis on which Roe is overturned. But that is equally true of same-sex marriage, interracial marriage, uh, any number of other things. And so I don't I have trouble taking seriously the assurances of, for example, Justice uh, uh, Gorsuch uh, or, or that, there, that this is not a threat to any of the other rights that we have recognized on similar principles. Um, we'll have to wait and see, of course. But the, at present, this often happens. A new principle is announced and it takes a while to find its limiting principle. How far does this go? And often you eventually find out that the new principle is not as sweeping as you thought or not as sweeping as it looked. We haven't heard that yet. At the moment, the, what we have in Dobbs is a very sweeping principle, which if applied with any kind of consistency, would mean striking down a lot of previously recognized constitutional rights.
0: Professor Schwaber, thanks so much for your time. It's been informative as always, and I wish you the best on your retirement, right?
1: absolutely thank you very much it was a pleasure to be here take care bye-bye
0: no podcast would be complete without some discussion of a couple of meyer fun facts and sure enough we have two here this time with no caveats as to accuracy first if you look close at article five the provision which governs the proposing and passing of amendments It contains a specific provision that prohibits any state from being deprived of its number of senators without its consent. So, no matter how small Wyoming or Idaho become relative to the other states, they get to keep their two senators even if all the other states want to reduce that number and attempt to do so by amending the Constitution. Second, the dichotomy between the right to vote and the right to jury trial is shockingly stark. While there is no mention in the Constitution of a right to vote, the right to jury trial is explicitly articulated and specifically provided for no less than three separate times. It first appears in Article 3, Section 2 of the main body, which provides in pertinent part, the trial of all crimes except in cases of impeachment shall be by jury. It then appears once again in the Sixth Amendment, which provides in all criminal prosecutions the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state wherein the crime shall have been committed. In other words, they were making sure that this right was applicable to the states if Article Three was unclear. And finally, the Seventh Amendment, which provides in suits at common law where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved. Interestingly enough, applying to the federal courts alone. It is not difficult to find scholars that have called the jury the fourth branch of government. That concludes episode three of season two of Meyer Fun Facts. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you'll be back next week. To make sure you never miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's free. Remember, you can email me topic suggestions and comments at meyerfacts at gmail.com and you can get my random thoughts on my twitter page at meyerfunfacts until next week take care